You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. We sit down with Josh and Kelly, co-founders and co-owners of Bernal Cutlery in San Francisco. We talk about their humble origins out of the back of an apartment in 2005 and how they've grown the shop and their wares to service up a dedicated following to their legendary store offering up knife sharpening, antiques, and insights, along with great musical tastes. And then we dig deep into the archives for a nice, beautiful, Sunday-tailored performance, or whenever you're listening, with Belmare. Greg interviewed them around that time about their EP and full-length coming out, and they talk about recording at the legendary Electric Lady Studios and how they found band members on Craigslist. It's a nice dip into the archives, and we hope you enjoy it here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. I dream about you all the time. You must be on my mind. When time was turning being tired. The bold of fragile mind. We hope we might make it out alive. To live, to tell the tale of it. Our hands were washed and
Josh and Kelly, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for taking the time away from the store to sit down and chat with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're actually at the store, but okay. take time away from the, the, the store part of the store. But Yeah, thank you for ignoring the customers uh, to chat with us. Um, really appreciate it. Um, you know, the way I've always looked at knives and handmade knives and the people that I've met who've worked in this world is – so similar to like the people I've met, like in the punk and DIY scene. I've just seen it as this idea of something that most people think you can't make or can't traipse in or can't deal in. And you say, no, we're going to make it in our own. And I know that you guys are a fan of punk rock and you guys are drawn to that, that type of music. How much does that ideal, that DIY aesthetic apply to you and, and what you do? It's definitely like been, you know, I think all about like our origins and I mean, and and it still extends to, to us now that I think people think of us as being this like monolith, (laughs) you know, because we have a big store now, but um, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, that I think that that definitely informs a lot of what we do. And I think, um, you know, there's in, uh, in culinary knives, there there's um, in a lot of ways, in a lot of places that we source from and craftspeople that we deal with, there's like kind of these longstanding traditions of, of independent craftspeople. And um, so I think that that, you know, intersects with a lot of like kind of things that definitely like punk rock rely on for, you know, and, and I think that the, the, um, the network of, of smaller uh, things and people doing things, you know, in their, in their own little ways and stuff and all the different personalities that you, that you kind of deal with. There definitely is like uh, in a way, like the pre, you know, the way that like bookings used to happen, like pre internet, you know, that, that part of like the, the, like how people would go on tour and, you know, all that stuff. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of analogies. I mean, it's a bit different in a way, but it's it's analogous. Well, I think. I mean, I also think that there's a for me there's a there's a little bit of a separation that I would I would just maybe pick a little pick a little bone with around um, the whole notion of um, I think DIY and the whole idea of like an artisan craft is you know also like you know I think people like overuse the word curation now you know. Um, that kind of, it's almost like, um, you know, a lot of these kinds of terms have been almost kind of, um, turned, um, turned in on itself, almost like didactic in a certain kind of way. But I, I think I kind of understand what you're getting at. And I think for me, I, I come at this, um, with a celebratory notion and really interested in the story behind manufacturing and the story behind making things. And, um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, very much part of like my background and my roots. I come from Pittsburgh. I come from a steel mill um, family on my dad's side, you know, so my family worked in the mills up in Pittsburgh. And so I very much like the idea of celebrating like working class people, trades people, people that have these like skills that are 
more or less kind of forgotten. Um, Josh secured a, um, a kaiten wheel, which is a really large sharpening stone from Japan right before the pandemic. And it came right before shelter in place happened and just sort of sat in the front of our shop, which is what now is um, our pantry section of the shop. It's really empty and kind of dark and dank and cold. It was a really depressing part of the shop during shelter in place. And everybody's working in a very, you know, the COVID times. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we were forming a relationship with a, with a gentleman who knows how to do machining which is a really, like, it's a lot of art. A lot of people don't know how to do that. So he just built this beautiful casing for it. And we finally just, um, Josh is now able to um, do grinding on it and stuff like that. But anyway, back to back to what I'm trying to get at is that I, I think that is, um, so there is like that intersection, right, with like punk culture and working class people. And, um, and, and I love like the whole aspect of like, um, under, coming to know myself and coming to know ourselves in this time period by interpreting history through objects. And so I think there's a little bit of that kind of thing that we do here at the shop too, especially with like vintage knives and old things. So we also do um, a pretty um, good business with vintage knives as well, not just manufacturing um, or handmade pieces. So we do a little bit of, we have a nice big spectrum here. I mean, that's, your question at all. No, it does. It absolutely does. And I think it's, it's, um, it's all connected and, and to see the parallels and to see like how you've also interpreted it to be your own thing as well. Um, and going back to your point, like things have, have transformed and words have taken on such different meaning now that seems so commonplace, uh, now, cause it's easy to have a conversation in 2022 where it's like even getting pitched on, Oh, these two people own their own like knife grinding shop and they have a pantry and they do this and you go like, Oh, cool. Like this sounds great. And there's other places like it, but I want to go back a little bit to like the early aughts when you first two met and like, what was the scene like back then? Because this wasn't commonplace. Like this was a very um, unique sort of endeavor. So how did you two meet? How did you guys get started? Was there even a desire for people to have their own knives sharpened at home? Do people even know that you could get your own knife sharpened at home? <laughs> um, you mean uh, that last part, can you just clarify about your own knife sharpened at home? Do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, if, let's, let's go back to the early aughts um, before the store opened and things like that. You know, the idea of getting most people getting like a custom handmade knife or even taking your knife to the store or even knowing that your, your block of knives could be sharpened. I don't even know if people or the majority of people knew that like that was even a thing back then. There were mobile, you know, like there'd be the, I think the standard ways that it was done. I mean, there's been knife shops in San Francisco, you know, you know, going back to the, you know, establishment of San Francisco. So it's like, and, and, and that's not unusual to San Francisco, but it's, you know, it's like, there's always been that, that thing. And I think like, there's a long tradition of knife sharpening being kind of a bit of a itinerant kind of craft. So it'd be kind of like, you know, something that people would set up on the street or would have like a cart that they would bring around that kind of morphed into like the, the, like, you know, um, mobile truck or, you know, a van or something like that. Uh, you know, maybe like people 
dropping them off at hard the hardware store, that kind of thing. People have set up shop at the flea market, a farmer's market rather. Um, so I think that's kind of been the a bit of the modality with sharpening. There's but there's always been shops, I suppose, here. I think in maybe town, there's but- just like a, a um a generation gap of this kind of knowledge too. Like part there is definitely like a just like, you know, all of a sudden we were like, oh crap, we don't know how to cook stuff, right? Like what was that like? I don't know, like two thousand year two thousand ish, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking, like that that late nineties, two thousand when it's like, all right, we're we're no longer sharpening knives and making our own food or at least the idea of that uh there was definitely like a gap and that's when you guys sort of entered the scene so like yeah like you could always get your knife sharpened but not everyone knew that you could well japanese knives started to become popular Mm -hmm. in the in the like in the 90s i think the first if you didn't live somewhere that had a japanese american population in, in the united states which san francisco certainly has had beleaguered as it has been and uh, you know um but like you know i mean you know west coast cities that had japanese american populations had like a japantown or little tokyo or something like that and there would be you know japanese knives there and that was more for pretty much japanese cuisine but the style of japanese knives that would work for doing a broad kind of cuisine, I think became mostly available and introduced to people through global knives in the nineties. And then the, you know, and then kind of gradually Japanese knives started to become a bit more entrenched in professional kitchens. um, And that spread to the um, home users, which, you know, mimics the, the kind of the way that I think knife culture in the United States in the last, half of the 20th century kind of work, you know, where you had like uh, people like Graham Kerr and Julia Childs introducing uh, French cooking to, uh, to um, American audiences. And then the, um, you know, battery cuisine comes in afterwards. Right. And so then people start using chef more and start looking at that. And then, you know, the tools that professionals are using kind of filter into home kitchens. I think people, um, you know, that's how that's worked. And then I think, people found that those ways of sharpening their, their their new Japanese knives like didn't work quite as well. But I think that there's still a fair, fairly like, you know, uphill slog with really kind of getting the understanding about what sharpening is about and the differences between what somebody does in a truck in, in five minutes with like five of your knives and with, you know, and, and then so, there's also definitely like a, a much more appealing thing with like around 2015, I think was when I, I kind of think like the height of like what you open this conversation with around the DIY kind of that I think 2015 was a really interesting period of time because I think a lot of like what Josh is talking about kind of like spread a little bit to like pop like the popular culture or like the culture large. And so so people that like started becoming interested in like food culture, um, you know, all food politics or wherever all those things intersect, you know, then it became kind of, I think, um, like, you know, we had, we were just a hole in a wall and on Guerrero street and the mission and we weren't on the main drag. And I think you kind of had to know somebody to tell you where we were. And then you came in and then we were like a small little tiny shop, you know, we were 
playing records. We were always playing loud music. We, you know, it was a kind of a, a, a nice little place to hang out. I was like, kind of like missed that place a little bit because it was, it, it kind of reminded me of like a barbershop in a way. There's all kinds of, a cross between a barbershop and a bar, you know? And like a record store. And a record store. Yeah. yeah. Like cool conversations. Um, I've overheard a lot of funny stuff. Um, <laughs> And, and just got to, got to know a lot of really cool people. And um, so I think that that, I definitely think that that little shop really influenced knife culture in San Francisco for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, even that little shop and getting started um, and Josh, going back to what you said, there is that difference between the guy at the farmer's market, who's going to sharpen your knives as you go pick up produce first building this community or this space that people can go to and, and not just get their knife sharpened, but learned about it and have a conversation and then see other people hanging out as well. Um, was that the idea behind opening up or starting in 2005, just being like, we want to offer this, this area or like, like what no, we wanted, no. we wanted, <laughs> we wanted food. both food and electricity. Oh, okay. so, so we had, a, yeah, we had, we had a young, um, we had a young baby. We were like kind of restarting our lives um, after like a, a, a pretty like boisterous period in our lives. And, um, so we, um, that's what we were putting it. Yeah. We, we were, we were, we were coming out of a pretty, a pretty serious addiction and we were getting sober. So just to be fully transparent, um, and, yeah. And so, it, I mean, I'd like to think that we were always that clever, um, but, you know, we just kind of, um, you know, we just, we, we were scrappy, but we were also, you know, we were also like very much into like being principled and who we were. So we just found it worked for us. And, and, you know, so, I mean, Josh was like sharpening out of the house and, um, and then that led to him, you know, going to flea markets and finding things. And I was working on photo shoots during that time, the early, early days. And he was staying at home with our, with our firstborn. So there was this um, kind of almost like, I think Josh and I have like talked about it before. Like it was almost like he went to knife school during those years, <laughs> you know, cause he'd find old things. He'd have to learn about it in order to, so you can get more money for something if you know about it. Right. And you have, yeah. And so, you know, so he, he started figuring out a way to make money off of his intellect and that was great. Um, so we did, he did eBay and he would work at night um, while me and the, the kid or kids, cause we ended up having three. So it was a little bit of time there. Um, and, uh, and then eventually we opened up our first brick and mortar in 2010 and that was fun. And we did, and we did the sharpening through, we did the sharpening through a butcher shop. shop. Um, and then we'd also kind of go around to, to restaurants, um, a little less so, but I would do like little, you know, I'd like bring out like a, you know, couple dozen old knives to, um, to people in restaurants and, you know, kind of like sell stuff that way, pick up knives from restaurants, um, that were, you know, kind of nearby and, uh, a lot, a lot of sometimes this business was done with like the aid of the stroller because I would like you know need to I'd need to bring our, I'd need to bring Charlie with us so he'd be like chilling in the stroller while it would be like 
picking stuff up and dropping stuff off, you know, and we'd stop off at the playground on our way there. So it was like the the business and life was very much like, you know, enmeshed. I'd go and like raid the, you know, free newspaper boxes for the, uh, for the newspaper to wrap up knives with. Um, so Nothing sorry. That starting I- a business, like uh, bringing knives and a baby to a playground. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, I love it. Um, all right, let's take a quick musical break, and then we get back. I want to talk about um, 2010 and then going back to 2015 when things started to change and then talk a little bit about your sharpening soundtrack for when you're in the knife, uh, when you're working on knives. We have a song from the archives here on Stacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We used to make noise. We used to make noise when we tied, but now we're silent to the high. Yeah, yeah, you like to tie me, you like to tie me up at night. Are you a stranger to the light? Yeah, yeah, we have a day of stay. Back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Josh and Kelly of Bernal Cutlery in San Francisco. And so, you know, in opening that first store in, in 2010 leads me to believe that you had enough business and enough customers and enough people who, who wanted your wares. Um, how did you get the word out? How did it 
grow to the point where you said this is no longer just for extra money on the side or to you know to pay bills but we can make a real run at this yeah we had a blackbird shop on crescent avenue we sort of uh, experienced the the ride of living in a gentrifying city in san francisco where we had to move around a lot um and we landed for a hot second um so we were originally on Cortland avenue um and then we moved to Moultrie. If people know Bernal Heights, then they know these streets. Um, and then we ended up on Crescent Avenue, which was a, a little um, Victorian storefront building, but it wasn't a mixed use space. So um, so we treated it like almost like an artist studio. So like we had um, like a little blackbird shop, basically. We had a counter. We had um, a you know, a little area where we were like cleaning up vintage knives and stuff like that. And then we'd open up, we'd have like an open house a couple times a year where people could come in. Um, and then um, Sharpening got around to some folks and Josh um, was building rapport and connection with like butchers in the na- neighborhood, um, a, couple, a sushi chef. There's just some different people that would come and knock on the door and drop off their knives there for, um, for sharpening. Um there were a so, bunch of cooks that that knew yeah. that that would kind of you know I'd make little appointments and for them to either like you know check out knives or to or get their stuff sharpened. Right? That was and yeah, we started doing classes through, mm. like I mean, we were doing classes in our kitchen like I think six months after <laughs> we started. I mean, that's great. I mean, what you know, that's the best thing about it is that I can do it for you or I can teach you how to do it. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm stoked to teach people how to do it because it was something that took me so long to figure it out, and it was like I did such mm. a shitty job for so long. Yeah. And, like, so when I actually kind of figured out how to do it, like I was like, I was, I was like, damn, I wish there was somebody that like, you know, could have showed me how to do this. And there, maybe there was, but I just couldn't, I didn't know how to access it. You know, and this was. Yeah. And know. that just builds rapport because it's, it, it just shows that you're not just in it for holding knowledge or saying, if you want your knife sharpened, you have to come to me. It's like, I'll teach you, but I also yeah. know that you'll kick me some other people or if you get hard up, you know that you can just kick me your knives as well, and yeah, I'll take them fur to you. We are hella anti gatekeeping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you have to be in this community. I think it's especially for something like this where it's not like you invented this knowledge; you discovered it, and now you're sharing it, and it just builds rapport. It builds trust too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that place lasted for a little while, um, and then I started thinking that this would be a good time for me to leave the photo shoot industry. I was working mostly on catalogs, doing um, soft goods styling for like James Sonoma, Pottery Barn, all those folks are like kind of up here in the Bay Area. Um, And then, um, yeah, right around 2010, Josh and I just went for it. We just... Well, we had a friend in in Bernal Heights whose old landlord... Um, had just bought a building on on Cortland Avenue, like the little commercial strip in that neighborhood, and um, and, and just, they told us about uh, that they wanted that um, the owner of the building, the new owner of the building, wanted to do like a little project in there, um, and that you know should be renting out the building. And I thought that that was like oh, renting out the whole space. It was like a thousand square feet. And and Kelly said to me like, oh, you should go. You know, we should talk to them. And I thought, oh, no, there's no way we can afford it. Like, you know, it was like we had just been like just, you know, struggling. Like it's like, you know, you, you it's hard to to really like build a business on what you 
earn on a business if you're kind of broke. And it was the recession. That time was terrible. Yeah. So like it started to get better here before it did in other places, but it was still kind of like, you know, it was, it was hand to mouth and there wasn't like, there wasn't a lot of like, we didn't have a savings account. Like, let's put it that way. Of course. Um, So it seemed like a fool's errand to go and like, you know, get get into debt or whatever. But, you know, Kelly was like, just, just go talk to her. Like, it's, you know, (laughs) like it turns out that, um, that, um, that the, the idea for this space was to make like a little kind of indoor marketplace, kind of like inspired by the, um, like indoor, uh, markets in Latin America that are like independent little stalls. Um, and so, so we got like a little 90 square foot space. Um, like you could barely fit fit two people. Yeah. It was like, and I had my little, I had like a little tiny sharpening area. We had a one display case and then some shit on the wall. There's a, there's a, there's a photo of it. If you're curious on, there was a New York times article that was printed when we, when the whole space opened and there's a kind of a really good shot of what our little tiny teeny oh my god tiny. yeah i'll have to dig it up <laughs> but yeah but once we but once we had that space and then then it was like um you know and and we were out there like people are definitely finding us you know and, and and it started to get a little busier and then that's right when we started importing stuff from japan too so we're out like we were able to like we like begged and pleaded our way into this little eight thousand dollar loan and started to get a little bit of, of inventory like that. And, um, you know, and then like we, you know, started to get more competition in town. And so got a little more, um, I don't know, it just, it, it, but it just kind of grew. So, and then within a couple of years we were like, we, we had, you know, kind of run our space there and we, we definitely felt like we could do a lot better with a bigger space and also getting people up into, um, into, Bernal Heights is like really difficult. It's not that far away from stuff. And from like the, you know, Los Angeles geographical perspective, like it's, it's you nothing. know, nothing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. San Francisco, people like, you know, like people get in their little habit trails. They get their yeah, little of like, course, of they're course. like, you know, there's like this little like posted stamp of like, yeah. you know, city that they're like, oh, but there's that hill or it's like, you know, there's right. like one. I can't bike up that hill. I can't do that. Yeah. No, or like, you know, there's one street where it's like the medieval map, like, you know, there be monsters. I kind always of thing. said that Bernal, like going going from the mission to Bernal Heights, is like going from you know San Francisco to Oakland to a lot of people. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, no. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. And you're like, it's not that far. But if you're already no. having the it's not that far conversation, you've already sort of lost. Totally right. So so we 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 heard about this um, this space opening up on on Guerrero Street, mm. and. Um, and uh, and it just kind of all fell into place, and then it was like that was like the next like thing where it was like, wow, like really having like you know our own space, having a little more space. I mean, it was like having I don't know windows, what, having windows to put stuff <laughs> in. Like, Which was actually like I remember I totally forgot about this, but just having glass windows, mm. like, like just knives on the wall. Um, we would just drive by and just we were like, is it going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Drive by and just be like, okay, it's okay. We can go home now. <laughs> we can go home. Um, you know, you talk about this watershed moment in 2015 when sort of food and uh, you know hit this the zeitgeist in a way that we now see it today, and and how you guys started to be seen as like you know you go from the DIY thing to like in people's mind like 
the big guy. But it's always funny because like it's still niche, it's still hard. Um, when you started to realize that you had established yourself and and you did have this community, um, what were some of the growing pains then? Like, how did you stay true to what you wanted to do, but still feel okay with growing the business? Well, you know, I, I mean, honestly, like I always, I always, I mean, and it's a little corny, but I always joke around and say like the shop is like almost like this, like kind of punk rock pirate ship in a way, like we, we are successful because we listen to what it tells us to do instead of trying to find a sort of agenda. I mean, we have all kinds of ideas all the time and we try them out and they don't work. And then we just go with what does work. Um, we do that with like the staff too. Like we have a, we have a few like core people that work with us and they've been here for like, we have two people that have been here for 10 years, five years, you know, like we, um, we have a tiny crew. Um, so I think just like, I mean, I know this, um, sounds another corny thing to say, but I think just like grounding ourselves in a sense of humility and staying with what, um, with what resonates and, and also like we're just good at surviving. Um, as as individuals, right? Um, I mean, we've we're raising up babies here in San Francisco. It's no, it's a, not a, it's not, it's a tall drink of water to be trying to live here. So, um, so I guess in some sense, like we're just tough. I think we're also, also like we have a sense of like grounding. Yeah, but it, and it was also like not just us. I think like there's yeah, there's that's true. I think a notion about like <clears throat> punk rock being DIY and like there. Like that is like a lot of the origins of it in a lot of ways, or like a lot of like the best things that have, you know, that come around or things that are organically, um, you know, derived instead of like a marketed, like, you know, kind of product, right. Um, that, that people voluntarily, you know, do cause they want to do it and they want to connect with other people. But I think just as much of like, do it yourself is, is like the notion of like, um, you know, to, I, I guess like at the risk of kind of going, like delving into like, you know, a little bit maudlin, like eighties punk rock terminology, but like, you know, a scene, right. Like what, like, which is like all about like a, 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 a cooperative venture. Right. And like, a um, where you have like the people in the crowd at a show might also be up on that stage next weekend or are doing other things that are kind of contributing to like a creative effort. And I think like in a certain way, like everything like that we were doing in a way, like was, was like kind of like that where there was like a, it felt like at its best, it feels like there's like a, a, a reciprocity happening with the people that are supporting the shop. And then that, that like, you know, that are doing inspiring food and then that are, that are, you know, or our crew that are um, bringing like things that inspire them to work or they're like, you know, we're figuring out how to like, you know, sharpen like these, you know, you know, how to, how to do one thing or another or like, yeah, of course, getting, like, feedback with people. And like, so it's like, a, I, I think this, that notion of cooperation and like, you know, like, some degree of like, horizontality i think in in a way like as much as that can be in a business right but like um but i think that's what's really like giving it resilience and and i think that opening it up to like our crew's energies and opening it up to like um 
you know, people getting a chance to, to become more um, invested and, and get more, you know, creative license and stuff, I think brings it, keeps it from, from just feeling like a product or a one-liner. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it comes back to community and also what you said about not gatekeeping and just sharing, sharing what you've built with, with the world. Um, now, before we go, I, I want to make sure I, I, I talk to you about the music played at the shop because you mentioned it was loud and, and it was it was big and a big part of it. Um, if I walk in and you're sharpening or you're just holding cord or things like that, what can I expect to hear on the soundtrack uh, at, at Bernal Cutlery? Depends on who's working. It really I think, depends. You know, <laughs> um, like, you know, <laughs> it might be like, can't like some some old cameo like like records like or or it might be like I, I've been on like a French Oi kick lately so it might be Rich um, that's been I've been flogging that record lately um, or like uh, you know like what or fleeces like you you know fleeces sharpening she's like, usually listening to metal like motorhead or motorhead yeah. or yeah. Um, or, we had, we've had like, I feel like we've also like the, the, we've had like certain eras, like, uh, like that were like around certain records, like back, back when we actually had like a record player, like there was like the, there was the, uh, there's like a big mix of personalities there. So like, I actually found the little, a little small stack from Guerrero street when I was putting our records up uh-huh. uh, a couple weeks ago and the swell I, maps, and the swell and- maps was in there. Um, dead moon, um, the, like a bunch of pebbles compilations. Yeah. So, I'll do like I kind of like go between like punk rock, like old French, like hot jazz, uh, and uh, and like like sixties garage. You know, like th- that'll be kind of like my like if I had a three legged mu- musical stool, that's what it would be. <laughs> I you know I like that term. I like that. Well, listen, congratulations on everything. It's so. Great to hear your story and to meet you. If people want to check out the store, if they live in San Francisco or from afar, where can they go? How can they they get uh, involved in the community? Well, we are, uh, you know, Bernal Cutlery, bernalcutlery.com. We're at 766 Valencia Street between 18th and 19th in the Mission District. We're we're often like on site. We're one of the few stores on Valencia Street where the owners are still on site behind the Mm. counter days so come in and say hi sweet yeah middle now so we have a gray beard <laughs> in your knives no don't bring us no dirty ass knives josh has a gray beard and i have some gray hair yeah, oh. yeah clean your knives please clean, clean your, knives. your knives wait do yeah. people like bring like yeah. non-washed knives to get sharpened yes yes mm. cake frosting dirty, dirty cake frosting might be the nicest but it's yeah we make them go behind the counter and wash them good yeah shame you ring the shame bell Um, (laughs) well listen thank you so much josh and kelly really appreciate it we have another song yeah 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 um and next time up in san francisco i'm gonna come by the store and say hello um we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on sackatoons on heritage radio network
Thank you.
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. 
And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We have Belmar live in studio. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Hey. Um, shout out to Rami from Popgun who said to reach out to you guys. Hey, Rami. He's a good dude. He's great. <laughs> one one day they'll open up that new venue. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I know. Um, do you want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Amelia. Uh, I sing in the band and I play few chords on guitar from time like just, to time just a handful just a handful just a handful is that in the contract um yes <laughs> i actually heard about um one band described another band member as like uh, playing the least amount of notes possible that's uh, pretty much me okay sometimes i actually pretend to play no i'm just kidding okay. but, like sometimes it does happen <laughs> it all comes out <laughs> i'm tara i play keyboards okay uh, my name's tom i play guitar so um how did you three come together well, one day, <laughs> um, I, I had, so I just moved to New York and, um, was kind of looking for people to play with on Craigslist. Um, and I met this one girl called Karina. What, um, what we, year is that, by the way? This was in 2011. Do you think people still look for band members on Craigslist? Yes. I actually do. Really? Yeah. You I do? definitely think they do. Okay. Yeah. Um, Nothing but success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I, I take the question back. We found our basis <laughs> that way, too. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I met this girl called Karina, and we uh, decided one night to go to an open mic. It was a really freezing winter night, and we almost didn't go, but I'm really glad we did go because um, we played a little set, and then Tom came up to us after and was like, do you guys have any demos? And then we were like, no. And, um, and uh, then... Uh, he was like, oh, I'd love to record some demos for you. And this woman in the bar was like, hey, guys, you better be careful. Like, you don't know who this guy is. Like, make sure you know, you know, you bring someone. So he brought with us a bodyguard to Tom's house. Yeah. And, I, I uh, mean, Amelia was 19 at the time. <laughs> yeah. I think I went up to her and offered her, asked her if I could buy her a beer first oh, at the okay. bar. So yeah. <laughs> and, I didn't uh, know, but... <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, um, Karina went off on a trip to India and I came back from holidays and hit up Tom and we sort of just ended up working together after that. Oh, amazing. Worked out really well. Um, what was the name of the place for the open mic? I was called Bar 4. It actually closed now. Oh, RP. Uh, and how has the songwriting process been between all of you? Um, it's in two forms. Good. I mean, it's like sort of goes in phases, really. I mean... Um, everything just starts as like, you know, just sort of a bedroom recording. And then, um, you know, I'll do something. Amelia will come over. She'll do vocals. Um, and then, you know, we send that out to the rest of the members in the band. Um, how has it evolved over the years of working together? Like the newer material versus some of the older material? Um, I think the, I think the songwriting process has kind of changed because, I used to write a lot more alone when we first started out and then come to Tom with something that I wanted to kind of develop. But now it's Tom is mainly the one to sort of come up with um, an instrumental part and then I'll come over and come up with a melody and lyrics. Um, so you can play less notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically why. <laughs> um, well, why don't we hear a song? Sure. sure. What are you going to play first? 
We're going to play a new one called The Dark of My Evening. It's not on the EP. It's going to be on the new album that comes out hopefully soon. Okay. Live on Snacky Tunes. Yeah.
Amazing. Uh, so I know that you've recently been recording and you ended up in uh, Electric Lady's studio. How did that come about? Uh, well, uh, so we were doing a um, we were doing a video session for the Wild Honey Pie, um, and it was recorded at Electric Lady's studio, and we recorded it in um, Tom Elmhurst's studio. It was Studio C and after the session, um, pretty much they reached out to us and, and said that they wanted to, um, you know, start, you know, pretty much just record an EP for us and start an imprint. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. And then, um, you know, slowly it materialized. And then actually just about, just about two years ago, this month is when we first started. And, uh, the song that, uh, you guys heard at the beginning of the show, Cicada was actually the first one that we recorded. And that was recorded just about this time, two years ago. What's the negotiation with that? If they, like, reach out to you, do you just say, like, yes, or do you have to play a cool? Or, like, are you like, mm, I don't know, maybe we have time, maybe we don't? <laughs> we were just like, hell yeah. Yeah, we were like, <laughs> get us in there. Was it, like, yes, like, immediately, like, immediately oh, yeah. came in? Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't even yeah. think we asked any questions. Yeah. Just, like, you want to record us? Like, okay. Do we have to pay? <laughs> um, I mean, and what is it to, to record in a place so legendary? Like, do you feel it in the place? Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. I mean, can totally. you try to describe it? The walls are vibrating. It's really, yeah, it's like you enter a completely different world when you're in there and you lose all track of time. Um, and also, apparently, it's haunted. So, um, I don't know. While I was in there, I definitely thought that I felt. I don't know. Who haunts it? Um I don't know, Jimmy. <laughs> um, Legendary I, yeah. musicians. Yeah. And how do you think, like, being in that place you, uh, affects you? Does it, like, push you, do you think, just given the history of the place or change the songwriting process? Or I think it, like, I, I don't want to say it's a added level of pressure or something, but sure. you definitely, when you're in there, you really want to step up to the plate. And, um, I, I mean, th- they would definitely make it easy on you. I mean, it's... Uh, the, just from the talent that you're working with to the equipment there, the studio itself is just beautiful. And, you know, we just went in there and, you know, had a good time. We got like, you know, wine, beer, snacks, and just, you know, just had a really great time. And did the producers maybe pull some things out of you that you probably might not have otherwise had? Definitely, but in a very subtle way. There was, like Tom said, there was absolutely no pressure. And it was a really relaxed environment. And I think that's really what made it, um, what made the best of it come out while we're in there yeah totally i mean we worked with um ben bapti and he's mm. just he's just he, he's very subtle very intuitive and um just not very over the top he's never like well you guys need to do this or that and he just kind of lets uh, i think he sort of guides us to do what he wants us to do but mm-hmm. without actually what was like one piece uh, of you know it, saying it, so. what was one piece of advice where he like jedied you into doing something different i feel like he we were playing well most of our songs are pretty sad but there was one song in particular he was like you guys need to all feel this song mm. and i think it took us like three hours to record it over and over again to get a take feel it in what way or how did Just you to take be it? that sadness okay. which is something that when you play a song over and over again it's hard to manifest Right. Over and over again. I just went and, to a sad place. And then after he said that, I think we got it in like one take. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was really amazing. Was only one of you feeling the sadness, and then it took the rest of you to, to <laughs> no, feel no, the sadness. A lot of sadness uh, okay. all around. Oh, yeah. Um, why don't we hear another song? Yeah. All right, just give me one second. Okay, um, we're going to play 
one off of our first EP. Actually, the title track called "The Boat with a Fragile Mind." But this is one we don't we don't normally play this live, just because um, we never really worked out with the full band. Um, but I think it's sort of meant to be played in this way. That's kind of acoustic and low key. I dream about you all the time. You must be on my mind when time was turning me into a bold fragile mind. We hope. We might make it out alive To live, to tell the tale of it Our hands were washed and Sad. 
bit sad. Bit sad. The... Fitting for beginning of fall. I feel like today was the first real kind of oh, proper fall day. I know. Day. I just yeah, oh, I said that earlier. I really yeah. felt it today. I love so it. Great I got my here. first uh, hot coffee. I'm. Of... I never do hot. I never not have hot coffee. Really? Are you serious? Even, yeah. I, there's something about the dilution from the water. Like, <laughs> it's more, I get it. But That's um, awesome. I know that you guys also love food and, and wine. Um, do you cook for each other? Is it? Yes. Yeah, we okay. do actually. Yeah. What is like? Uh, <laughs> what do you guys cook for each other? Well, I'm always making pasta. Yeah. Okay, I'm, like from I'm Italian no. from scratch. <laughs> yeah, I do actually. Um, That's a lie. <laughs> Just what do you mean? What's a lie? You don't need the. Nut. Oh no, no not, yeah. not the actual. Okay. Not the actual noodle. But, Proper yeah, the sauce. I I make it from you know fresh tomatoes okay it's so my, um, good and he simmers it for hours like, <laughs> what, uh, that's what, thing about my your, cooking you have recipe? to have a lot of patience um that's i mean well so my nonna <laughs> my nonna is uh she's like the best cook in my family mm-hmm. you know uh so when i was growing up i'd always just you know sit with her and watch her cook and she's she's the type of chef that can't tell you well, you have to put this amount of salt in this no, amount. Of, they never can. You know, yeah, it's like this. She says that, it in Italian. Yeah. She just looks at me. Yeah, sort of. You know, whatever. So, um, it, you just kind of have to feel it out. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just like I take a long time to cook because I really like the process. It's nice yeah. to have people over, drink wine, and you know, by the time the food is ready, everybody has like a purple mouth, and yeah, you know, we're all ready to go. I feel like uh, I also make tomato sauce from scratch, and I, th- I feel it takes like what? four hours. Yeah, it's the best. But, part. It, but I think it's like the that's. It, the sauce becomes irrelevant after a while. It <laughs> yeah. It's more Amazing, just, yeah. yeah. It's about that time, too, I guess. It's uh, it's winter. It's fall. Well, that's the thing is I I haven't really cooked over the summer, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm already getting – I made um, I, I made some chicken noodle soup okay. um, yesterday out of a, you know, fresh chicken carcass. Amazing. Which is, which yeah, is also the fun. best part of the chicken. Exactly. Yeah. So. And do you all get to – you both get to benefit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you well, cook mm-hmm. Do you cook too or mm-hmm. – Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. What are your specialties? <laughs> I made them rice and bean burgers. Oh, yeah. oh that's great. They are amazing. Yeah, we yeah. Are, we always still crave them. This was probably like three years ago, too. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first meal she ever made for us. And we're always like, Tara, when are you going to make us, you know, your veggie burgers? Wait, have you only made it once? Um, I think so. No, you made them electric lady Oh, I brought them to the studio yeah. to okay. put on the grill mm-hmm. and we made kebabs. And mm. I like found all these sauces in the studio. I don't know how old they were, but... <laughs> I better not to ask. Sauce, <laughs> condiments don't really go... I mean, they go bad, but it's much... They were in a fridge. Yeah, it's I fine. Think. I think that technically that's fine. And you're still here. And yeah. do you cook I'm as kind well? of a breakfast chief when it comes to cooking. I'm, I love making like chia pudding and this granola... Tara's had my oh, granola. It is so freaking good. It's like paleo no granola, so there's no oats. And it's like all nuts, chia, like mm. raw honey, coconut oil. I think we ate like half the oh. container. So, I mean, so you yeah. three kind of have all the meals covered. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Um, does the bass player like throw it in or just, <laughs> just eats? He just eats it. Yeah, oh. just has <laughs> It's a good roll. Um, so I know you have CMJ coming up right around the corner. Um, are yeah. you playing at all? Yeah. What shows are you, where are you guys playing? Um, we're playing at... Um, where are we? The Pine Box. The Rock Pine Box Rush Up. That's right. Just down the road. On, uh, oh, perfect. On October 16th. And we're playing with, um, actually, our friends, um, Workman Song, um, is actually playing with us. He plays in uh, the band Streets of Laredo oh, as great. well. And, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, really excited to be sharing the bill with him. Uh, is it any particular showcase or is it uh, just something you guys put together? I, You know what? It was, it's nothing that we, you know, put together at yeah. all. Somebody just reached out and, perfect. and wanted to, you know, have us. And you had mentioned that a new record is imminent or coming, <laughs> uh, distant well, future. Y- you know, it's it's one of those things where it's 
it's it's almost there um so we're, we're really just waiting to uh get our final mixes back but um all the tracking is done and and we can't wait for <laughs> there's a big grin to, in here that no one can see except for us yeah, yeah. so uh, well we've been you know we're, we're going on um it's going to be just about three years since we released our ep so we are itching to get something out there totally understandable so. um well i want to make sure we have time for one more song um where can people find you follow you get updates um definitely uh, you you could check out our, our website it's www.bellamiremusic.com um check us out on facebook um we'd love it if you gave us some more likes and um uh, in twitter as well and instagram a Spotify. Uh, a and Spotify. Camp. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> everywhere modern bands are. Exactly. Uh, well, big shout out to LA Donut Festival. Thanks for being on the show. Um, hello to Darren, Anna, Joe, Manella, Mom, Dad, all of our friends. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org/slash subscribe.